You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 72 in this show, A Dozen Myths About Human Trafficking, Part 2. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And we did that in a big way back on last episode, Sandy, number 71, where we began to look at the 12 myths of human trafficking that the Polaris Project has put together. And we were fortunate to have Deputy Chief Derek Marsh from the Westminster Police Department with us on episode 71. And we talked in detail about those first six myths. And so we're bringing you now the second half of that conversation, which is now looking at myths 7 through 12 and talking in detail on what are some of the uh, things that are maybe popular myths about trafficking that aren't necessarily true or there's only a piece of them that are true and really looking at the complexity of this issue because that is important us sandy is really looking at the full complexity of this issue and studying the issues so that we can be even more effective at working to end human trafficking before we get into that interview though um Speaking of getting more effective at studying the issues, we have the conference coming up to really help all of us to become more effective uh, in just a few months, Sandy. That's right. So you want to be an early bird and get the early bird rate to register for Insure Justice 2014. Um, Why is she a slave? Our speakers are amazing. Stephen Bauman, CEO of World Relief, and Dr. Joanne Butrin. Um, Reverend David Myers from the White House Faith-Based um, Agency in Homeland Security, and Shima Hall. And if I I um, can encourage you, you will love meeting Shima and hearing her tell her story. Her book is coming out on January 21st. I'd advise you to pre-order it. Go on to Amazon.com and order The True Story of a Modern Day Child Slave hidden girl. So, uh, Sandy, I think that's going to give us a good overview for the conference. So reminder to go to gcwj.vanguard.edu. That's a great place to find information. And now let's go ahead and uh, join our conversation again with Deputy Chief Derek Marsh. Thank you, Deputy Chief Marsh, for coming back to finish six more of the 12 myths that we are addressing about human trafficking. And we talked about the six first six that um, included the idea that only foreign nationals were victims, that this was a crime of travel and crossing borders. We talked about um, myths about the difference between trafficking and smuggling and the elements of physical bondage, as well as um, the idea that victims are asking for help and will self-identify. And finally, we discussed the idea that all victims come from some sort of poverty situation. Now we're going to roll into the last six myths, the first of which is myth seven. How can the first be number seven? I don't know. Sorry about that. Myth seven, seven 
sex trafficking is the only form of human trafficking. Tell us the reality. Well, um, again, I think this is also, uh, this is generated, I think, predominantly from a law enforcement focus as far as what we're able to actively go out and pursue. I know that from a law enforcement area, because that's my expertise, obviously, um, that any kind of vice operation is something that law enforcement is very capable of doing that we've been doing for you know decades uh, as far as finding people who are you know per- performing illicit sex acts for people. And so moving into sex trafficking was a relatively easy thing to do. But if you look at the numbers across the world, in fact, they are exactly the reverse. That for the most part, if you look at the ILO, um, the International Labor Organization, they estimate that 60 to 70%, if not more, of all trafficking is labor trafficking. Uh, there's a study by a Harvard professor that claims that 96% of all trafficking is labor trafficking. If you look at the United Nations reports, they claim anywhere from 50 to 70% of all trafficking is labor trafficking. It's only here in the U.S. with our task forces and our expertise in vice investigations that we have been able to get what we're looking for. That, mm. And I think the reverse is true except for the world, that now we show that sex trafficking is 80 to 90% of the trafficking we find in the United States. Whereas I think if we were to have a better expertise in finding forms of labor trafficking and following up on those investigations, I think we're developing them, but not, we're not there yet, that we would find that sex trafficking, while predominant and nothing to minimize, uh, is definitely may not just not may not be the overwhelming type of trafficking that's occurring in the United States. Well, and and one of the things that reflects how we are changing is our legislation, because here in California, the um, uh, California Transparency Act has helped us begin to identify slave labor that's on the shelves in our stores. And we have a secondary responsibility to that because we drive demand for those cheap products, and which drives demand for labor trafficking. But you all know that's one of my, my pet and I want to talk about that all the time, but I need to move on to myth eight while we have um, the deputy chief with us today. Human trafficking only occurs in illegal underground industries. What's the reality? Uh, yeah, that's another one I think that uh, it, it sounds cool. I think I think we have a lot of media that it's, it's posted uh uh, movies like Taken, or you know, I can think of any ten movies off the top of my head that have any kind of human trafficking focus. That you're dealing with illegal criminal organizations that are, you know, taking advantage of immigrants or domestic uh, victims, and they created this kind of mythos, if you will, that it's all about illegal criminal enterprises that are creating this type of victimization. However, it can be it, there. There's domestic servitude. Uh, that is handled through individuals at homes that have gone out and victimized foreign nationals or perhaps even people in their own family that are forced to doing labor in the home. We have uh, marriages that are false that are being done that are individual that are not a victim of a criminal enterprise at all. We also have industries and we've seen some people actually prosecuted in the United States that involve labor, whether it's sneakers or it's Martha Stewart or it's any other type of activity that people are taking advantage of, whether it's in this country or out of the country, of cheap labor to take advantage of these people so they can make more money and have greater dividends 
um, as a result of the back of the people they're victimizing. So while um, it, it's, of course, it makes a great movie uh, or makes a great TV show <laughs> to show the illegal criminal enterprises, I think in reality we find just as many uh, being supported by individuals or by um, corporations who have not done their uh, due diligence, if you will, their corporate due diligence, uh, not focused on corporal, uh, global citizenship issues, and are using workforces that are being um, abused uh, or misused or underpaid to perform the labor and services they're requiring to make a profit and be successful in our capitalistic society. Mm, okay. Well, um, Myth 9 brings us to the uh, slightly different issue in this respect. If the trafficked person consented to be in their initial situation or was informed about what type of labor they would be doing or that commercial sex would be involved, then it cannot be human trafficking or against their will because they knew better. What's the reality? Well, the reality is this is a, this is a tricky one because people are under the impression that if you say okay, then it's okay. If you were a you know if you were prostituting yourself in a foreign country, that if you came here and agreed to be a prostitute here, uh, or be prostituted if you will, then that's okay. It's not so much what you agree to; it's how you're treated when you get here. That's kind of the the, the pivoting point, if you will. So you may have agreed to let's say. Sell, sell your body here in America. But then when you get here and they don't let you go out and they don't let you eat unless you're told when you can eat, they don't let you, they don't let you be in control of your documents. They don't pay you what you, they promise you if they pay you at all. All those things would contribute to the forced fraud or coercion that would lend itself to you know being a victim of human trafficking. Or you can be promised to be something, let's say you promise to work in a restaurant and then you show up to work in that restaurant. But by, the, by work though, you thought, you know, I was you know, wait tables or I'm going to clean dishes or I'm going to perform some kind of cleaning service. And when in reality, they point to a pole and say, you're dancing on that pole and you're servicing customers and we take the money from that. But that would obviously be another instance where, yes, I agreed to get here, but I didn't agree to these conditions as well. We've also had labor deals that were made with contracts in foreign countries that um, wouldn't stand, you know, 10 minutes in a court in the United States but these are our victims feel compelled to pursue those. And these have been situations with um, senior care facilities where these people have been told, well, you can be a senior care worker or supporter. We'll pay you this amount of money, but you owe us $80,000, but you also owe us room and board and you owe us for clothing and you owe us for this and that. And as a result of it, they never can pay off their debt. They're basically free labor the cost of whatever it took to bring them into the country or to hold them hostage in these different locations. And suddenly you have um, a situation where you have trafficking. The idea that they should have known better, uh, no one's prescient, uh, no one can read the future. I think the idea here is whether they come from a foreign country or they're their own citizens, that everyone's hoping for a better life. And if it sounds too good to be true, sometimes people believe it might be true. It could happen to them. And it shouldn't be held against them that they thought that maybe they could take advantage of a situation that would better their lives, better their families' lives, and instead were taken advantage of and forced to do things they did not want to do in times and places they don't want to do them uh, for a period of time they don't want to participate in and for um, – money or compensation that is not something they were bargained on to begin with, if they get any of that at all. 
Which that kind of leads us into the 10th myth of the Polaris Project. Foreign national trafficking victims are always undocumented immigrants or here in this country illegally. What's the reality? Well, I would say there, there's a degree of truth of it. Obviously, there are people who are coming across illegally and they're being taken advantage of. Uh, I think in California, we have a tendency to believe it more because we you know, hear so many stories about people coming across the border and not being um, properly documented uh, and do, going to all these different extremes, you know, ponga boats, you know, tunneling, uh, crossing rivers, being you know, put into awkward positions in vehicles or other transportation methods that, you know, are horrendous and they think, okay, well, that, they would only do that if they were legal. But the reality is um, there are a lot of people who come here legitimately either through student visas or through work visas, and there are lots of different types, so I don't want to get into the individual parts of that, that come here to want to be a legitimate member of our society, whether they're visiting or for long term, and then they come to a point where they, they're in a situation where they want to extend it, they can't, or someone finds them during that period of time, tries to romance them, and then forces them into something else or coerces them into something else, or they become a victim of trafficking. So, yeah, are there people here who come into the country illegally and they're victimized? Absolutely. But I don't think that by far they are the only people who are victimized. And in fact, many of the people we found who are victims, again, professional workers from foreign countries who are here in a, in a legitimate sense or to get further education or to actually what they believe to be actual real jobs, but they're, they're defrauded. And when they get here, the legitimate job they're promised is not the job that they're actually forced to do. So we have seen that human trafficking has become a huge hot topic in media we have seen that um, there are new nonprofits and NGOs popping up every day that are going to fight human trafficking. And one of the aspects of that leads us to myth number 11, that somehow there is a citizen savior. What's the reality? Well, I, I, I will tell you first, before, just to contextualize the citizen savior myth, is that there, I have never met people that once they understand what trafficking is, uh, don't want to become passionate about it to some level or don't want to participate or assist in some level. And so I think it's this passion to help and to be more immediate and get that kind of immediate gratification that they've helped somebody or that they're helping somebody or helping a situation of trafficking that kind of spawns these people who go a little bit beyond the pale, if you will, and begin to think of themselves as citizen saviors. They're going to go out and do investigations. They're going to go out and do interventions. They're going to go out and interface with people on the street or in situations where they feel there might be trafficking and actually try to rescue them or to help them or to intercede on their behalf and do things. And, and some of this is not as well guided and it's fine. But when you when it gets to the point where you're doing investigations, you're doing surveillances, you're interfering with these people in the middle of their victimization, you you don't have the backup. You don't have the skill set. You don't have, and many times the um, the ability to make this a legitimate case or make it a legitimate save. So, yes, is the goal of our trafficking um, laws in the federal and the state level to save victims? Absolutely. But especially when it comes to investigations and getting involved, some of these situations. Well, we talked earlier about them not all being illegal criminal enterprises. A lot of them are. And these people are ruthless and they citizens put themselves in grave danger and not just themselves, but the victims as well, because if they go and pretend to be a John or they pretend to be a participant 
and they're instead trying to intercede, and this and this person is being you know watched, which they almost always are, and they're not being you know. And, what you've run across is the potential for these people to be harmed or to disappear, as opposed to just finding something and letting law enforcement say, I think this might be something going on. But if you get in the middle of it and you intervene, that person could be hurt, that the citizen who's trying to help could be hurt and are at risk. Um, and what the hardest risk is, is those people disappear and you never see them again. Who knows what happened to them? And you're really doing a disservice to those potential victims by interceding without having the right backing, the right you know, follow up the right investigative skills, the right ability to provide the services they need immediately to physically and actually rescue them without endangering yourselves along the way. But um, I understand from a lot of these organizations that the primary investigators are retired law enforcement, so they know how to do investigations. So what they collect as evidence should be admissible in court, and we should be able to get more prosecutions, and we need more people doing investigation. That's, That's what I hear. Explain that, and, and I and I hear you, and I and, and you're right. You're right. And those people who are, let's say, retired law enforcement or retired military, we've had this. We've had offers for retired military. Well, super capable people, super great experience. Uh, not minimizing their contributions, whether it's in law enforcement, the military, in the slightest. However, when you're off the grid and you're not technically. Um, part of a law enforcement agency anymore and you're not part of the military anymore all of the work that they do has to be redone by us and they know that i mean in their heart of hearts they know that i think their passion gets a little bit too much overwhelms them wait a minute they lose a little clarity of thought you just said all the work has to be redone by you but by you know the you are the the current law enforcement you're you're badge carrying right now so you have to redo all of the investigation but if that if the people have left because they've been discovered how do you do that well and that's exactly the problem sandy that the bottom line is if they do that investigation or they do that video they may show elements or issues that deal with human trafficking, hands down, no argument there. But then because the the judge and the people and the jury are going to want to hear what happened from the law enforcement angle and not just the, you know, um, the person on the street happened to witness what they witnessed at that time, then what's going to happen is we have to redo that. And if we go back to try to find that person and they're gone, because most of the time, even the people who try to do the saving only provide them literature or things like that, which is fine. I'm not minimizing that, but the problem becomes if that's discovered or someone thinks that they might, uh, if the trafficker thinks that they're, person they're victimizing, their source of income, that's, that's their livelihood in a sense, then they'll disappear them, then we can't find them again. The odds of us finding them can be very remote. And so while the citizen has gone out to try to save and do the right thing and rescue people like the TVPA you know, wants us to do, uh, what they've in essence done is the exact reverse. They've created a situation where we can't find them again. The victimization might increase or might not, but we won't be able to have an opportunity to to reach that person. So maybe we may find them a week later, we may find them a month or a year later, but it's a week, a month, or a year more victimization they had to suffer through the good intentions of the citizen saviors. Wow. It's very complicated, but the bottom line is we do need to uh, work with law enforcement, not disregard the fact that in this country we have due process and we have legitimate ways of collecting evidence. And if we really want to prosecute and put the perpetrators away and provide justice for victims, then we have to work with law enforcement, not perpetuate the myth that we can do this as Lone Rangers. 
yeah, I would I would just reemphasize that everything every, everything we focused on, at least in the Orange County Task Force, none of the other task forces follow the, the same road. Is that we are here to as a team, we're we're here to work together, and there are lots of things people can do individually who want to contribute to the human trafficking or anti-human trafficking movement, or to helping people who have been victimized, or to helping prosecute people who are victimizers, who are traffickers, that do not involve them getting in the street, doing active investigations, or trying to do interventions that put themselves at risk. And this is a good point for us to remind listeners that the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline is one way to report what you have identified as a possible risk situation. So you would call 888-373-7888 to report any kinds of signs of what might be human trafficking. But if you are in a situation where you see something happening right this moment, um, an underage girl being picked up for what may appear to be um, uh, some sort of commercial sexual exploitation, uh, you can call 911 and there will be, uh, that will be the more immediate way to get resources um, directed to that situation. I agree. I, I think that you know, the, the national hotline um, is great, and they're they're tied into all the local human trafficking task forces. And if there's not a task force in your area, they're tied into the uh, Department of Homeland Security as well as to the Federal Bureau of Investigation in your area, which there are there on all areas of the United States. And so those people do, I know, follow up. Those those agencies are, you know, that's one of their primary missions is to follow up on these type of reports. And so nothing is neglected. You may not hear about it again yourself, whoever makes a report, but I can guarantee you that they have a list that they're given and they're expected to follow up and make sure and determine the viability or what they can do as far as investigation or who's being victimized. Okay, so last myth before we have to say goodbye. Uh, myth 12, if it's a statistic, it must be a fact. Uh, what's the reality I love this one. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things we actually spend time in uh, during the training throughout the state, um, the Kalima train that we do. There's, I can't say how many, you know, articles I've read, how many um, academic articles I've read, how many uh, maps I've seen showing all types of different migration patterns and immigration patterns and human trafficking patterns. And all I can say is, you know, numbers are great and we keep trying harder and harder to be able to standardize those numbers and to accurately track what's going on. But it is a very complex issue that does not lend itself to a quick yes or no answer in most parts. And as a result, um, the numbers you see aren't always the numbers, they don't always represent the accurate facts of what's going on. And so we, I, I have graphs that will point out um, that there's ex, there's 6,800,000 people being trafficked around the world at any one, t- any one year, which is what our State Department goes with, and that's fine. But how do they know that? They're not actually tracking numbers. If we look at the TIP report, the Trafficking in Persons report put out by the State Department every year, they'll, they'll say that these many people were being identified as victims, and it's usually around 38,000, 40,000 people, which is significantly different than the 600, 800,000 that are estimated that are running below the radar that aren't being tracked. If you look at the ILO, you know, projecting what kind of human trafficking is out there, their emphasis being the International Labor Organization is that labor is the predominant deal. The UN's a tad more equitable about it, but they still focus more on labor trafficking. But if you go to the United States and they focus more on sex trafficking, and this is where a lot of these myths are brought about, where you are is what you see. 
And unfortunately, you have to take those numbers with a grain of salt. The idea, I think, that's predominant is that trafficking is a reality. It exists everywhere. It's both domestic and international. Children, women, men are all victimized. There's both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And there are agencies like the Polaris Project and the State Department and other places that do put out interesting information and push out trends, which I think are very valid trends that they talk about, and academics who do research that's incredibly valid and point to different aspects of the human trafficking complex, if you will. But uh, no one number I've ever seen encompasses or, or tries to, is capable of describing human trafficking as a whole, other than the fact that affirming it does exist and something we need to deal with. Um, not just from a legal perspective, but from a spiritual uh, perspective, from a, being a citizen of the world and having a global responsibility to hold people accountable who take advantage of other people. The um, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center uh, through Polaris Project just recently released a trafficking trends report for trafficking in the United States. And this was particularly helpful for me because... When people talk about trafficking here in the States, the focus is almost entirely on commercial sexual exploitation of children, which warms my heart because that's something that I'm a a big advocate on and and do a lot of study and and work against that. But when I look at the victim demographic overview from this recent report in the sex trafficking arena, 52% are adults. So do we not value um, over 18-year-old people who are also being um, exploited in this modern-day slavery? The only answer, well, I, you know, well, how do we do that? How do we help people see adults as valuable as well? Well, I almost see that's like you're, uh, the hidden 13th myth uh, when it comes to domestic trafficking is that they're all kids. Uh, and it is by is way easier to sell to your chief of police and to your city council and to your local government agency, frankly, that kids are being victimized and we need to do something. I don't think anyone viscerally can refute that and say that we don't need to focus on that. But the reality is that many adults are being, um, are being victimized as well, as you said. And I think our culture has a history of believing in self-reliance. And if you got yourself in the problem, you got to get yourself out of it. And I, I can't tell you enough that if these people are being victimized, this idea of hypervigilance, of psychological coercion, uh, sometimes even physical coercion to reinforce and do things like that, uh, is, is a reality. And, that these, and these adults are just as much victims as the kids are. They're just as much victimized as the kids are, and in many times have been victimized much longer than the children have, and uh, need our help just as much. One of the risks of using statistics is that um, hyperbole can backfire on you. Um, can you address how misreporting can become a funding issue? Well, funny you ask. When we first started getting involved as, as the Orange County Task Force, I know you were part of it too. Uh, the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, came out and they were reviewing different task forces and their reporting of victim stats and investigation statistics and found that uh, they found statistical errors in just about every you know organization or every task force that they looked at. And I can tell you that um, in, in, in well, whether it's a well-meaning effort or unintentional, I, you know, I won't, I won't, I'm not here to point fingers at anybody, obviously, or any organization. Um, 
due diligence and statistics is huge. And that was one of the things we focused on in Orange County. Everyone thought I was crazy. I remember people laughing at me saying, well, I'm creating this form and we're doing it once and we're double checking and the rest of it. Because um, what you don't want to do is sell bad numbers or sell numbers that have been inadvertently or inadvertently uh, represented as being accurate and uh, found out to be false or inaccurate because of what it does is it actually undermines what you're trying to do. It makes it look like you're trying to, through hyperbole, through drama, through um, emotional uh, language, trying to state a fact. And that does not sell people when it comes to government funding. It doesn't sell people as far as anybody who wants to support the movement. Uh, while it does engage people to make them feel passionate about it, it really does a disservice for law enforcement or and other agencies who want to get involved, but they want to be involved on a much more professional and statistically justifiable level. And I would point to the D.A.R.E. program. I used to be person back in the early 90s. I was our first D.A.R.E. officer here at the Westminster Police Department. And when they were doing numbers out of LAPD, and again, not pointing any fingers, when they had the people doing the numbers and claiming all these different wins, but then when an independent agency went in and found something different, a great program that really provided great outreach for law enforcement and the community and for kids in the community was undermined from that moment on because of the discrepancy between the numbers initially reported and the statistics uh, later found. I would hate to see that tragedy repeated with the human trafficking movement because there are legitimate victims, tens of thousands of them I'm sure out there, who are needing help and to have it derailed by misrepresentation or poor numbers or hyperbole would be just a tragedy um, beyond beyond words. So how would you recommend someone make a decision based on the all the statistics, and I'm using air quotes that you guys can't see, that are out there? How do we make good decisions when we have so many competing voices telling us the numbers? I was, I heard a TV report last week that said that right this moment, there are 300,000 U.S. children being sold for sex. I couldn't figure out where that statistic came from. Well, I think, well, we, we know the Estes article back in 2003, where he listed a bunch of issues with runaways and juveniles and, you know, their conduct. And I think that was um, kind of taken out of context with that particular report or that academic study. Um, I've actually emailed Mr. Est- Dr. Estes at one point, asked if he did any further research at this point. He had said no a couple of years back. But um, I think on the whole, the, the idea is that you want to look in your own backyard. You want to work with your local law enforcement. You want to work with your local NGOs, your partners who are out there serving, servicing victims of crime and finding out what's really out there now. And the trick is really education and the sense of understanding the right questions to ask of the right people at the right time so that you get the answers that are legitimate and that actually can help forward things. And understand that, you know, human trafficking, you know, victims or survivors don't tell the, you know, victims especially don't tell the right story the first time. Time. You have to be patient and understanding and realize they are a victim of crime, whether it's multiple sexual acts against their will or whether it's forced labor. Um, they have to be feeling safe and secure before they will give an accurate representation of what's happened to them. And I think if you take it on a case-by-case basis 
and you can justify it from the fact that the world recognizes that human trafficking exists. And there are plenty of images across the board, whether you go to YouTube or you subscribe to any kind of news agency that can share the types of things that are occurring. You can like, you know, go with the FBI websites and look at the types of crimes they're prosecuting uh, federally and the types of, you know, child exploitation that's going on, sex trafficking, pornographic and otherwise, and see that those are legitimate issues that are occurring now Team with those people, team with your federal partners, with your local partners, with your local law enforcement parker, partners, your, your NGOs, your faith-based community groups, and then put together uh, a strategy that, um, that will address what's happening in your region that fits the best practices that are going on. Uh, that are you know espoused by the OVC, by the BGA, by the National Human Resource Center, even by NICMEC for that matter, anywhere you can go, uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that you can go to help serve the potential victims or people who are being victimized in the sense of trafficking. Well, you've pointed us right back to the reason we do this podcast. We want to study the issues so we can be a voice and make a difference. And if we don't understand what the issues are in reality um, based on on good um, research, then we may go down the wrong path. We appreciate you, Deputy Chief Marsh, very much for giving us your time today. And we'll come back and ask you more questions in the coming years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being part of it. Well, we would love to thank Deputy Chief Derek Marsh for joining us for this episode and also episode 71. If you hadn't listened to episode 71 yet, be sure to go back and check that one out for the first six myths. And of course, if you have comments or questions for us about anything we've talked about in this episode or human trafficking topic in general, you can reach us at gcwj at vanguard.edu or you can reach us by phone 714-966-6360. And reminder, the conference is coming up in March. Sandy, where do people go for information about that? gcwj.vanguard.edu. Click on conference and register early for the early bird rate, March 7th and 8th. Hey, we hope we're having a great start to the year and we'll see you again in two weeks. Take care, Sandy. Thanks, Dave.